Genesis. I got a big hug from Genesis uh, this morning. So it, was, it's really, it really is good to have the Dyers here with us this morning. And uh, Marilyn's dad, Art, is here with us this morning. Um, and many of you know that Marilyn and Case are getting married next month. I've, I've said before, no one needs to multiply anything by seven. Seven is the hardest multiplication to, uh, yes, it's hard. Um, sorry, I have a school teacher disagreeing with me. Anyway, a few more weeks, five more weeks until Marilyn and Case are married, and then we'll probably see a whole lot less of Marilyn around here. But anyway, it's a joy to have them with us while they're, I get to do the wedding in California in November. So November 13th, I won't be here. Uh, Pastor Matt will be preaching that week. And so anyway, I won't be, uh, that, the rest of you who are visiting with us this morning can rest easy. I'm not going to make anyone else feel uncomfortable this morning. Now, for what I think are the most important words of every sermon, are you ready? Some of you already know what I'm going to say. Please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I think those are the most important words that I speak for every sermon. Please take out your Bibles. And of course, you may have uh, a, you know, an iPad or an iPhone or something like that. That, that counts. That counts around here. We'll let that, let that work. But it is important that every single week, whether it's me or one of the other pastors or a guest preacher um, addressing us, that they do so with an open Bible. Before we even get close to addressing the passage uh, together here this morning, obviously I want to mention there's been a significant tragedy in our community yet again. Um, as early this last week, uh, we lost our, uh, one of our firefighters and our, uh, our fire chief in an accident. And um, almost immediately upon being made aware of that, I began to realize how, how good God has been to help us prepare for that. I hope that you realize that the sermon that Will preached last Sunday has immediate bearing and implication for us as Christians when tragedy hits us and we see the brokenness of this world and the horrible and difficult things that, uh, that come to us almost on a daily basis. Will talked about one of the things that we see through tragedy is the sinfulness of man. But one of the things that we also see through sin and through suffering is how great the cross is. You remember he talked about stretching the cross out over all of human sin and suffering? And brother, thank you for preaching that sermon. That's part of what God used to minister to my heart as I considered the difficult things uh, that we were uh, as a community walking through here at the beginning of this last week. And many of you in our community are, are aware with the de- uh, of the details there. And there is a memorial service, uh, I believe, tomorrow afternoon. Um, at 2 o'clock, and is it at the Coliseum? Am I saying that right? Okay, I see heads nodding. So tomorrow afternoon at 2 o'clock here at the Coliseum. Um, this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, I'm going to be uh, reading verses 1 through 11. And these are the verses that we are going to give attention to this morning. We're preaching through the book, the letter that Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. And we're reading some verses, some of which are going to be very familiar to you, others of which we might read this morning, and you might think, I, I don't know if I know exactly what that means. Well, let's, let's read them together, and then we'll ask God to help us understand them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul has just explained to, uh, in, ver- in chapter 5, Paul has explained to the Corinthian believers that, look, you as Christians, you are to help judge one another. You, you are to look into the lives of each other and help each other get rid of sin. That's, a, that's an appropriate thing for us to do because, because you love God and love each other, you will stand uh, in a way that, that judges each other but helps each other. And then 
the, the chapter and verse division sometimes messes up a little bit because flowing right out of that, Paul says, now when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? What in the world? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? Now, earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul has said some confrontational things, and he'll say things like, I'm saying this to you not to shame you. But in this next verse, verse 5, Paul says, I say this, I say this to your shame. Paul is saying, shame on you. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother or sister goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded, but you yourselves wrong and defraud? Even your own brothers. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But, that's a big but, by the way, no pun intended. But, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Father, would you help us now to understand this passage to be affected by it, and to be changed by it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. My sermon title this morning is lifted right out of this passage. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. Emphasis on were. Such were some of you. When I was a kid in Sunday school, we sang a silly little kid song, and it was about the great change. There's been a great change since I've been born again, and it was one of these... uh, chant back and forth kind of songs, and you'd clap. There's been a great, and then someone would say, great change since I've been born. There's been a great, great change since I've been born. There's been a great, great change since I've been born. There's been a great change since I've been born again. How many of you have sung that before? Okay, me and like four people. Megan, I want you to, no, I'm just kidding. We're not going to do a duet this morning. No, and then there were verses to it. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. 
The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. There's been a great change since I've been born again. And then we would get, you know, we would get rascally when the Sunday school teacher wasn't around and we would add all kinds of verses, right? You know, the beers I used to drink, I don't drink. And, you know, we're like six years old. The girls I used to kiss, I don't kiss them anymore. That was only, we only sang those verses when the Sunday school teacher was not around, right? And that was edgy. That was edgy stuff for a six-year-old pastor's kid to be singing stuff like that. It was a funny, silly fun song, but that song holds a profoundly true principle regarding true conversion. If you are truly changed by God, then you know what? You are truly changed by God. There has been a great change since you've been born. And the things you used to do, you don't do them in the, anymore. And the places you used to go, you don't go there anymore. And the, I don't remember all the verses, but you get the idea. The funny thing is, we were, we were five years old or 10 years old. We were singing this song. We weren't being saved out of a life of hardened crime. And yet truly, the Bible makes it clear that there is a great change that happens. Look again in verses 9 and 10 and 11, uh, the end of verse 9. Do not be deceived, the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, and swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that, that's, that's, a, that's a very politically incorrect statement to make, but it's a very biblically accurate statement to make. And here's the reality, brothers and sisters, such were some of you. Such were some of you, but you have been washed. That, that is a great change. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. My, my main point this morning is this, that, that true conversion, and there's a lot of different synonyms that we use with conversion. We talk about being saved or being born again or our new life in Christ, whichever phrase you want to use. But, but that, when that happens, you are truly and genuinely changed. That goes, for, that goes for teenagers. That goes for young adults. That goes for old people. True conversion changes you. True conversion changes you. And I think we see three areas in this passage. You knew there'd be three. I, I see three areas in this passage where true conversion has an effect on the way we live our lives. Point number one is going to be this. True conversion changes who you seek out for reconciliation. You already know, because we read it together, but this is talking about believers taking unbelievers to court. Well, believers don't use unbelievers to help settle the, settle the matters of believers. I'm going to unpack that a little bit. Number two is going to be true conversion changes your need for self-vindication. True conversion changes your need for self-vindication. Some of you, if you are right and someone thinks you are wrong, you will not rest until you have shaken your fist and demanded, I am right. True conversion helps you relax your fist and relax your soul in a way where you realize, I'm okay. And it's in this passage. Point number three True conversion changes your very nature. 
So point number one, true conversion changes who you seek for reconciliation. And in chapter 6, verses 1 through the first half of verse 7, talk about believers and unbelievers and going to court and who can take whom to court and why it's a bad idea for believers to take believers to court. And I think we have this basic notion, many people who have kind of grown up in the church and grown up around Christianity, there's this basic awareness, this idea that it's not okay for a Christian to take another Christian and like sue them. We all kind of know that that's basically a bad idea. At least we think I mean, unless it's me and you're the person who's done me wrong, and I'm sure I will find a reason why the Bible doesn't apply to me and my set of circumstances, and I'm taking your sorry hide to court because of what you did to me. Well, let's just walk through these verses and see if God's ways are different than this world's ways. Because often, God's ways are different than the world's ways. These grievances that are mentioned here, when one of you has a grievance, I think it's interesting that when Paul is describing these grievances here, he talks about these grievances, he talks about these trivial matters, but anytime that I'm in conflict, conflict, I don't think of conflict as a trivial matter. It's not a mere grievance, right? If, If I'm the one in trouble, This is a big deal, and the Supreme Court needs to come and weigh in on this. Grievances, these grievances, Paul does not articulate what these grievances are. We don't know how big of a deal Paul is talking about the matters that these Christians, these brothers and sisters that are there together, um, living life together in the church at Corinth, we, we aren't given a hint as to exactly what it is. And that's probably on purpose. That's probably a good thing. Because then, if Paul had named one or two or three of the kinds of grievances that they were experiencing there at Corinth, if there was anything outside of those two or three examples, we would think, well, Paul didn't address my set of circumstances. Paul leaves it very open and very vague as to what kinds of grievances people were experiencing against each other. The Corinthian church was experiencing trivial matters or grievances with one another, and friends, We are going to have problems. We are going to have grievances. You're going to have marriage grievances. If you're married for more than about four hours, you're going to have a marriage grievance. If you have relationship with anyone ever, anywhere, you will have relational grievances. If you go to a church even once For only one Sunday in your life, you will have church grievances. If you work for an employer or have employees that work for you, you will have work grievances. If you have parents or siblings, you will have family grievances. Look, the reality is we live in a world where the people that are rubbing shoulders with us and bumping into us every day are just as sinful as you and I are. And so at some point, there's going to be some sparks. There's going to be some friction. The Bible says that by pride comes conflict. By pride comes contention. So I'm proud, and you're proud. And so when we, bump, when we butt against each other, well, there's going to be conflict. And you might think, well, actually, I'm being humble. Well, then the other person's being proud, and there's going to be conflict. We live in a world where there is going to be, because we continue to struggle with sin, there's going to be conflict. And God has given us ways to deal with grievances and to deal with conflict with each other. And we can look at other places in the Scripture. And some places say things simply like, 
Um, love overlooks a multitude of grievances, a multitude of sins. There are times where out of Christian love and kindness and charity, I can, I can choose to ignore the grievance that maybe has begun between the two of us, but often that isn't a, a way for us to, to, to process. The, the, the grievance can be overlooked. Most grievances between believers, though, can be handled by going to the person and seeking reconciliation, by, by going to them and saying, brother or sister, look, we have this conflict between us right now, and I, I, want, I want to humble myself before you. We need to talk about this. We need to work through this together. Sweeping things under a rug doesn't do anything. And often, and this is part of what Paul is addressing here for the church at Corinth, often, and I use the word often on purpose, often we need to invite a third party into the situation to help us work through the grievances, to work through the trivial matters. And, and we could spend, literally, we could spend a, a sermon series discussing these things. Many of you may remember that Boy, several years ago on a Sunday night, we did um, we worked through the uh, the peacekeepers, uh, peacemakers, Ken Sandy's peacemakers material, talking about how when you have conflict with one another, how you can approach someone else in order to make that thing make that right. And I highly commend those materials to you. We don't have time this morning to go through all of that. The point I want to make this morning is God has given us a way to work through our grievances with each other in a way that highlights the gospel and solves and resolves those grievances and allows us to have fellowship with one another again. Often you will need a pastor or a trusted friend or a counselor, someone who can help you work through a grievance. But often Christians don't handle things according to this passage. Often we don't handle things according to this passage. And we do like the Corinthians do. We take our matters into uh, and before people who, who aren't the ones whom God has set in our lives to help us work through difficult things. Now, again, these trivial matters, which we call trivial matters, this, this, we need to be careful with this. The end of verse 2 calls these, these trivial cases. I feel like, brothers and sisters, we can fall off we can fall off of the, the center of the road in, into one of two ditches where, where we uh, unnecessarily take grievances um, outside of the church and maybe we do bring uh, a, a lawsuit against another believer and God would say, no, don't do that. But I want to be careful that we don't fall in the ditch on the other side and where there are things that have legal bearing within the church, it doesn't mean that we, don't, that we ignore that and that there's abuse in the church and we think, well, we're just going to handle this within the church and we're not going to bring in the, the law that needs to be, to be, uh, to be part of this. That, that's not what I'm saying. This is not saying that Christians should not report to authorities or are never able to use our legal or judicial system. What this is doing is condemning the practice of Christians trying to stick it to other Christians by using the civil courts. And, and, and Paul lays out four reasons for, for not taking your grievance to the secular courts. This is all still under point number one, okay? So here's four things that Paul says. Here's four reasons why the gospel, when it changes you, it changes who you seek out for reconciliation. Point number one, or, or reason number one that Paul gives, he actually states that the unbelievers or those outside the church, that they're actually unrighteous. Look in verse one. 
When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Paul is, Paul is describing two groups of people. From chapter 2 on, Paul has been talking about two groups of people. Those who are blind and those who can see. Those who know God and those who don't know God. Those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven and those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. Throughout All through the book of 1 Corinthians to this point, Paul has been talking about these two different groups of people. And while Paul is not being unkind or inappropriate or um, uh, it's not like he's being um, derogatory toward unbelievers, he is saying, listen, there is a group of people who can't see the truth. They don't know the truth of God's word. They're, They're unbelievers. They don't believe this book. They don't care about this book. And brothers and sisters, God has said that this book is truth. So, so if I have a dispute and I need to get to the truth of the situation and I go to someone who doesn't know truth, I'm, I'm going to the wrong source for help. One of the points that God is making is, listen, within the church, within the saints, verse 1, how, dare, how, does, how does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And he's not saying that saints are smarter than the, than the, the judges that sit on our courts. What Paul is saying is this, saints know the truth. They know the God of truth. And when we have conflict and disputes with one another within the Christian church, go to those who know the truth as to how to solve your problems. See, if I go to someone who doesn't share my values, someone who doesn't know the truth, they are going to judge in a way that is not in keeping with God's word and God's values. This is Paul's argument, not mine. Paul says, don't go to those who are unrighteous. Now, this doesn't mean that every judge, when he makes a judgment, is making an unjust judgment. It simply means that if he's not a believer, you're going to someone who doesn't know the truth of God's word. Continue reading. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Point number two, or, or the, the second reason, I should say, that Paul is giving as to why we don't take our arguments to um, those in, uh, in the unbelieving world, to the civil courts, is because it's backwards. He's saying, don't you know that we will judge the world? Don't you know that we will judge angels? And there's, there's some confusion. That's a, that's a really interesting couple of comments there. We'll judge the world and we will judge angels. Well, well, God is the one and only righteous judge. And what most theologians and pastors believe here, what Paul is saying is this. We, we will be with God when that final day of judgment is brought against humanity. Like we will be on the side of the great judge. We will be with the judge and we will be with him in the courtrooms of heaven. We will judge him. We will judge, we will judge with him the world who doesn't know God and we will judge with him the fallen angels who don't know, uh, who have rebelled against God. So it's backwards. Second reason Paul gives for not taking your grievance to the secular courts is you're the one who's going to judge them. They aren't the ones to judge you third reason that Paul gives for not doing this is that it's a terrible testimony in front of believers. Verse 4, so if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. 
Can, there be, can it be that there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Brother goes to law against brother, and that for before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. This is a, this is a terrible testimony in front of unbelievers. They, they don't see that there is a change since you've been born and that God's word, that God's word has answers for you. Pastor John MacArthur says this about this passage. For centuries, Jews had settled all their disputes either privately or in a synagogue court. They refused to take their problems before a pagan court, believing that to do so would imply that God, through his own people, using his own scriptural principles, was not competent to solve every problem. The fourth reason Paul gives is this. Neither side wins when Christians take Christians to court. And again, he says it here. To have lawsuits, verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. When a Christian takes another Christian to court for the purpose of sticking it to them and getting my pound of flesh and getting what belongs to me, it proves, it proves that God's word was not sufficient to work out their disagreement. Again, MacArthur says, believers who go to court with believers are more concerned with revenge or gain than with the unity of the body and the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Corinth was a city a lot like the world that we live in today. Corinth was a place full of courts and lawyers, and people were used to taking people to court, and they had their lawyers almost like on retainer. We, are, we live in a very litigious society. We, we, our world just takes people to court over anything and everything. I, I was counseling someone earlier this week who had the threat of a lawsuit against them over something that was not even potentially a lawsuit sort of uh, predicament. But that was the threat, because that's kind of like the hardest way I can get at you. The, the hardest punch I can throw at you is to threaten you with legal suit. We live in a world that's similar. But brothers and sisters, though we live in a world that is similar to Corinth, we have a gospel that affects just as great a change in the Corinthian believers or should affect just as great a change in us as it does in the Corinthian believers. And to understand the gospel, we're going to highlight this here as we continue on, to understand the gospel is to understand how our grievances can be overcome by fellow believers. Essentially, Pastor Stephen Um says, essentially they are displaying to the entire city of Corinth that they do not believe the gospel has the resources to overcome their grievances. But it does. Point number two, true conversion changes your need for self-vindication. Is anybody warm in here? Anybody warm? No? Okay, just a few of us. I don't know, Mark, if we could nudge it down a little bit. I'm not going to say I told you so to anybody, but... Point number two, true conversion. True conversion changes your need for self-vindication. I think this might be the point in the sermon this morning where we choke the hardest. I think this might be where we think, ah, Jeremy, I'm not sure that I agree with you. Brothers and sisters, the gospel changes people. The gospel changes you. It changes you. There's been a great change since you've been born. The gospel changes us at the heart level, showing that we can suffer wrong and be okay. Can you suffer 
wrong and be okay? Can you suffer and be okay? Can you be slapped on one cheek and turn the other cheek? I think many of us, if we're slapped on one cheek, we just go to swinging. Swinging wildly, swinging our fist for anyone and everything that we can make contact with. Please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Friends, first, this passage that I'm going to walk us through here in a moment, this needs to be one of those passages that you have highlighted, a bookmark in, something, because you're going to need it a lot, because you're going to suffer. We live in a world where there's suffering, where there's grievances, where people are going to say and do mean things to us. And you need to know what to do in that moment. When your husband is unkind, when your coworker falsely accuses, you need to know what to do. What are you going to do? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20. What credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Okay, in modern vernacular, it's no big deal if you get a spanking when you did something stupid. Okay, that, what, what, that's no credit to you, right? If you got a spanking because you did something dumb, you deserved it. But... If when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure when you suffer for doing good, this, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Look, that implies something that God sees. That God sees when, you're, when you do something good and you get whacked for it. And you endure, and this, this is a good thing in the sight of God. This is gracious in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. What does that phrase mean, to this you have been called? To what have you been called? None of us want to say it. You're like, it can't be that. Suffering. You've been called to suffering. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to life on this planet. I'm not trying to be pessimistic. I'm going to get incredibly optimistic here. You have been called to suffering because Christ also suffered for you. Put your name there. Christ suffered for Jeremy. He suffered for Jeremy, and he left Jeremy an example, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, listen, Jesus suffers, and he suffers in such a way that it's an example. Jesus wants us to look at him to know how to suffer. When you are falsely accused, when you are mistreated, when you are done wrong, when someone has objectively done the wrong thing against you, what are you supposed to do? Stick it to him. I am right. And I'm going to make sure that it's obvious to everyone around who saw this happen that that guy's wrong and that I'm right. Hold on, hold on. Jesus suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, good. That's what I need to know. So I might follow in his steps. What are, what are his steps? I got to know what his steps were so that I can follow in his steps. Well, the passage ain't over. Verse 22, Jesus committed, when he suffered, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit 
found in his mouth. When he was reviled against, when people said things about him that weren't true, when people said things about him that were mean and unkind, when people said things about him that were ugly and hurtful, when people said things in the community about him that made him lose money, when people said things about his ranching and farming practices that weren't true, when people said things to the boss about him that kept him from getting the promotion, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Listen, the only way the only way you and I don't revile in return is if there has been a heart-level change by God because it is absolutely instinctive to start swinging wildly when someone reviles us. When he suffered, I'm in the middle of verse 23, when he suffered, he did not threaten, I'm going to get you, I'm going to sue you, I'm going to take you to court. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? This last phrase is maybe the most important of this passage. I hope your eyes are in 1 Peter chapter 2. The end of verse 23 says this. What did Jesus do? When people reviled him, he didn't revile back. When, he, when people um, abused him, when he suffered, he did not threaten. But what did he do? He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Who's the one who judges justly? God. So, so when people said things about Jesus that weren't true, what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to the one who does always judge justly. When people did things to him that were wrong and unkind, and he suffered even though he was righteous, what did he do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Friends, every single one of you, every single one of us in here have had or will have times where people say things that are not true about you. They will post things that misrepresent you. They will say things to your friends, to your boss, to your employee, to, to your employers, to your children that misrepresent and confuse, and they, they will revile you, and you will suffer at their hands. And do you know what your first step is to do? To entrust yourself to him who judges justly. God, you know what is true and right here. And there is a final day where you will judge all of humanity. I am not the judge. And in fact, brothers and sisters, you should know yourself well enough to know that you get it wrong too. Right? Like you might think, oh man, they're treating me wrongly. And then you realize, oh, wait a second. I'm, I'm the, I, was the, I was the one who was wrong. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. So let me ask you this, like Christ, are you, willing, are you willing to lose in order that others might win? Are, 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 you ordered, are you willing to lose in order that the cause of Christ might win? Haven't you seen people, when they're wronged, they start, I, I keep using the phrase, swinging wildly, and leave a room full of injured people around them? And at the end of the day, they're standing there, bloody knuckled with a bunch of casualties around them saying, see, I told you, I was right. There are times when the more mature person takes a hit and they never get a chance to vindicate themselves because they know that in the attempt at vindication of themselves, they would do 
more harm to others, more harm to a church family, more harm to the cause of Christ than it is to simply take the wrongful hit and entrust themselves to him who judges justly. Many of us have stories of this in our lives where we look, right, I've been a pastor in Dalhart long enough to hear gossip that gets back to me about me, and I think, that's, that's just not, it's not true. I didn't, I didn't say that. I didn't do that. That is not my heart about that, right? I hear things about you, and I think, ah, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to assume I know that person better than that. Brothers and sisters, we have to be willing, look, and where am I getting this? I'm sorry, I failed to point out the obvious in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look in verse 7, the second half of verse 7. Why not rather suffer wrong? Paul is saying instead of bringing your brother or sister to court and trying to stick it to them, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather suffer wrong? Because it hurts. That's why. Because my, my name is at stake. Listen to what you just said. Whose name should you be living for? Whose name is the one to be most exalted through your life? Paul is saying, why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather, oh man, are you kidding me? I don't even like reading it out loud, the end of verse 7. Why not rather be defrauded? I might be able to take a little bit of your mudslinging, but if my bottom line starts to be affected because of what you've said or what you've done, forget it. We're going to court, baby. I'm not losing money to you. Brothers and sisters, the call to follow Christ is often a call to suffer, to suffer and to be defrauded. Can you trust God with your grievance? This is the kind of great gospel change the Bible is talking about, a change on the heart level. A change where you're willing to realize my biggest problem has been taken care of by Christ. My biggest problem was that I was a sinner against God and I deserved eternal damnation. That's my biggest problem. My biggest problem is not what this person is saying about me in the community. That's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is not that I'm going to lose $10,000 or $100,000 on this deal. That's not my biggest problem. My biggest problem is that I was, a, I was a rebel against the king of the universe, and I earned and deserved eternal punishment and eternal damnation. That's my biggest problem. And my biggest problem has been taken care of because Jesus did not revile back when he was reviled, and he didn't punch back when he was punched, but he suffered and committed himself to one who judges justly, and Jesus came and suffered so that I don't have to. Jesus Christ came and died so that I don't have to. Jesus Christ came and took the hit of God's wrath so that I don't have to, and I'm a follower of him. That's my identity. I'm a follower of him, and if he can do that so that others can live, I can do it so that others can live as well. Are you always right? Do you stick it to anyone who tries to do you wrong? Do you make sure that the person always pays? What if Christ had dealt with you that way? And if that's you, you don't understand the gospel. I'm not saying you're not a believer. You might not be. But I'm saying you don't understand what Christ has done for you. You deserve eternal damnation, and Jesus took the hit for you. He took death so that you could get life. 
Brothers and sisters, that's the good news that begins to change us. When we understand that and believe that, it begins to change us. And I don't have to shake my fist in anyone's face and prove that I am right. Because I'm actually more aware that I was wrong. And that Christ has made me right. One pastor says, A Christian's primary concern should not be to protect his possessions or his right, but to protect his relationship with his Lord and his fellow believers. Number three, final point this morning. True conversion changes your very nature. It changes your very nature. Look again in verse... Um, well, I'll, I'll start again at chapter, or verse 9. Don't be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, adulterers, or men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The first phrase there, or the first sentence there in verse 11 is, is significant. And such were some of you. The reason he's saying were is because the gospel brings about change. The gospel does change you. There has been a great change since you've been born again. There, there has to be a great change since you've been born again. God changes those who are saved. You were walking in darkness, and now you are walking in light. Ephesians chapter 2, you were walking according to your father, the devil, but God in his grace and mercy has saved you and changed you, and now you are walking in his likeness. Just coming to church on Sunday mornings, friends, is not where this is proved or disproved. Some of you have me fooled. I don't know which ones of you that is because you have me fooled. I don't know who has me fooled. That's the deal with being fooled. Some of you have this church fooled. But friend, you do not have God fooled. Those who live in a lifestyle of continued unrepentant sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, extremely unpopular message this morning. And Paul has got some guts and starts naming a handful of the sins that people in Corinth would have openly walked in. Many of the people in Corinth, would, this would have been a very acceptable list of sins in Corinth. Sexually immoral. Well, you'll remember that in Corinth there were shrines where you could go and in the name of worshiping a god, you could, you could uh, uh, pay to have a, a prostitute as part of a religious experience. Sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy drunkards, swindlers will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. True conversion, my friends, true conversion changes your very nature. It changes your very nature. It takes people whose lives were marked by these things. Now, again, let me be very clear. Even after we are born again, we will still continue to struggle with sin, and there will be occasions where we even stumble and fall with sin. That is not what Paul is talking about. Paul is not saying, hey, look, if, if, uh, if after you're saved, if you are ever greedy again, you're going to go to hell forever. 
That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about if you live in a modality of greediness. I want, I'm going to get, I want more, I'm going to build my kingdom, I'm going to build bigger barns, and I'm going to get more land and build bigger barns, and get more land and build bigger barns. That's a parable right out of the Bible. If that's your MO, then first of all, you are going to take anyone to court who gets in your way. And Paul would say, listen, those whose lifestyle is greed and greediness, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. Those whose lifestyles are marked by unrepentant, continual sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality or heterosexuality, unrepentant sin, any sexual sin, any sex outside of marriage is sexual sin. And if you are living in a lifestyle of pornography or any of these things and you just are unrepentant and you're continuing in that way, God says, hey, listen, I'm warning you. That person who lives continuously in this sin with no repentance, with no remorse, with no desire to change, that person doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. But for the person, the person who has been, look in verse 11, has been washed. That's describing the new life in Christ. The person who has been washed, the person who has been sanctified, that this is describing their new behavior. The person who has been justified, this is describing their new standing. So here's a person with new life and new behavior and new standing. Listen, new life, new behavior, new standing. They've been washed. They've been sanctified. They've been justified by the work of Jesus Christ. These people have been changed. And when Jesus comes into your life and changes you in this way, that means you were one way. You were one way. Were by definition, means that now you ain't. I think that's in the Hebrew or the Greek here somewhere. It means things are different, that you were a certain way. I've had dear Christians, dear godly Christians, friends of mine, who have described themselves and said to me, Jeremy, I am, I am guilty of breaking all ten of the Ten Commandments. Me too. If you understand the Bible, if you understand the sinfulness of your own heart, then you too understand that you were a certain way. And it doesn't mean that we don't still continue to sin, but it does mean that there is new life in Christ. Friend, let me ask you, do you know yourself to be changed by the work of Jesus Christ? Don't fool yourself into thinking that I go to church once a week and I'm, that means I'm kind of good to go. No, no. No, the, the evidence that God would have you look at is the fruit of your life. Let me be, I mean, again, I, I try to be abundantly clear every week. Your good works do not save you, but true salvation, true conversion does change you. You were a thing, and that means you no longer are a thing. An illustration I've used in here a number of times, and I'm going to keep using it because I think it's so helpful. My fear for many Christians is this. Well, let me, I'll, I'll just use the illustration. Imagine that I took Abraham and we went to the Boy Scouts meeting here in town. I don't even know if we have a Boy Scout troop right now. But let's say we go to the Boy Scout troop and we, uh, I'm thinking about putting Abraham in the Boy Scouts and, and we're meeting. And I'm meeting with some of these Boy Scouts ahead of the Boy Scout meeting. And I, I start interacting with them and I say, hey, do you guys know how to build a fire? 
And they said, well, no, we don't, we don't know how to build a fire. And I said, oh, hmm, okay, that's interesting. Um, and one kid goes, I do, I do. And he gets out a cigarette lighter and a can of gas. And he says, I know how to build a fire. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking about. That's not how Boy Scouts build fires. And I say, well, how about, how about like community service stuff? Does any of you guys ever walk uh, an old lady across the street? And they're like, no, we don't, we don't, that's not even a thing anymore. Old ladies don't cross streets. We don't walk old ladies across streets. That's not, that's not what we do, okay? I'm like, okay, okay all right. And, and then I say, well, I, I know that Boy Scouts know how to tie knots. Like you guys can tie a bunch of different knots. And so can you tie knots? And they look at me and they're like, no, we don't. What are you talking about, tie knots? And I look at their shoes, and everybody's wearing Velcro shoes. They don't even know how to tie their own shoes. And I think to myself, that's interesting. Why, why do you think you're a Boy Scout? Like, on, on what basis do you think that you're a Boy Scout? And they kind of look at each other like they don't understand the question. And so I pick one of them, and I say, why do you, why do you think you're a Boy Scout? And he says, well, I'm a Boy Scout. Because he says he's a Boy Scout, and I'm just like him. And so I ask him, why, why do you think you're a Boy Scout? And he says, well, because I'm just like that guy, and that guy's a Boy Scout. And then I kind of come to find out that they all, they all think they're Boy Scouts because they all say they're Boy Scouts, and they know that they're all just like each other. They don't, they don't do Boy Scout stuff. I, I open the Boy Scout manual. And I say, have any of you guys ever read the Boy Scout manual? And they go, no, we've never read the Boy Scout manual. There's the scout leader up there in front trying to teach them some things about scouts. And I'm like, hey, do you guys ever talk to that guy and listen to what he says? And they say, no, we don't, we don't like him. We don't listen to him. But we're Boy Scouts. I hope that my illustration is really obvious. My fear for many of the churches in the world today, and it's even a fear that I have for this congregation, is that people look around and they call themselves Christians because they're just like this person who calls himself a Christian, who's just like that person who calls himself a Christian, who's just like that person who calls himself a Christian. And they can't tie knots and they can't start fires and they don't know how to walk old ladies across the street and they don't read the Boy Scout manual and they don't listen to the Boy Scout master. Brothers and sisters, you can know that you're a follower of God. And the way you become a follower of God is simply by faith, right? An open hand. God, I repent of my sins, and I'm putting my trust in Jesus. It's that easy. That's it. There's no, there are no works to do to become a Boy Scout, to become a Christian. We don't, we, you don't do anything to become a Christian, but when you are a Christian, you are changed. You're changed you're washed, you're sanctified, you're justified, you're different on the inside, and you know it. And then your, your change on the inside results in things like, you know what, that person is bringing a grievance against me. We need to have that worked out. Let's, let's talk about it. Let's get one of the pastors to come and sit down with us as a third party and help us to work. God's word has answers for how we can work out this grievance. Some, someone reviles you and you think, you know what, I'm not gonna revile back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna entrust this whole thing to Jesus. He's the one. He judges justly. See, my actions are changed and different because I've been changed. I've been washed and sanctified and justified. I've been changed on the inside. True conversion 
really changes you. It really does. And, and I'll say this, if, if as you consider your own life this morning and you think, there's like no, there's no change in me. My, I don't desire anything differently. I, I just go to church sometimes. Let, let me just ask you to, to consider your own life. Again, no one's perfect. I sinned before, before church this morning. I'm going to send some more this afternoon. I'll send some tomorrow. I mean, I'm, I'm not like planning on it, but I just know that I will. I'm not talking about a sinless life. But I am asking you, is there, is there fruit of repentance in your life? Is your life, has your life been changed by the work of Jesus Christ? You were washed, sanctified, and justified. Look at the end of verse 11. In the name of the Master, Jesus the Messiah, and by the Spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, true conversion really does change us. Please bow your heads and close your eyes. We'll go. Uh, conclude with a song, and then uh, Pastor Will will come and just make a couple uh, final announcements and prayer. But if you're here this morning and you aren't sure that God has changed you, that you are a changed being, I, 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 would, I would encourage you. Today, you can know that for sure. You can know with certainty that you are on your way to heaven and that your life has been changed. If you have questions about that, man, please talk with me or someone here at church or Look further into the Word of God. Don't, don't leave. Don't put it off. If you're here this morning and you have been changed, but, you've been, but you, maybe you've been living like you aren't changed. You, you haven't been living with an awareness of the gospel. You haven't entrusted yourself to Him who judges justly. Then, then just repent of your sins and put faith um, and trust God to help you. Entrust yourself to Him who judges justly. Look, we are sinful people but God's righteousness, God's mercy is super abundant and super abounding. We're going to sing about that here together in just a moment. Father, as we conclude our time together here this morning, I pray that we would be reminded of how good the good news of the gospel is. We're thankful that Jesus came, and even though we didn't deserve it, even though we were the ones who actually did the reviling, we were the ones who did the, uh, created the grievance that Jesus uh, loved, that you loved us enough to send Jesus to live for us and die for us so that we could be made right with him. We're thankful that your mercy is more. And we pray these things in Christ's name, amen. Let's stand and sing together. What love could